This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. Go from K Solo to O'Keefe Solo, that word solo being thrown around a lot on the station today. But hope everyone's doing well as we get set for the final baseball weekend of the first half of the season. And a big, important weekend for both local teams for different reasons. The Mets looking to keep the momentum going. And they start late night tonight, a three-game weekend series against the West Coast version of the Mets, the San Diego Padres. A high-spending team, high payroll, a lot of big names, a lot of star power, and a sub-500 record. The difference is, at least in the last week anyway, As we know, the Mets have started to turn things around. So it's a big weekend for the Mets to see if they can keep that momentum going. And it's a big weekend for the Yankees because they're playing a team that they should beat in the Chicago Cubs, who come in for a three-game series at Yankee Stadium. That'll be fun to see. Two classic Major League franchises that don't play each other that often uh, at the big ballpark in the Bronx to finish up the first half of the season. But the Yankees, while the Mets are looking to continue their momentum, the Yankees are just looking to get some momentum. And I got to tell you, it's difficult to think when was the last time the Yankees had some momentum. It's been a while. I think it was probably about three weeks ago when they won those two weekend games against the Texas Rangers to take two out of three in that weekend series. The Sunday game, a come-from-behind win, was one of their best wins of the season. The Rangers are good this year. And then after that, the Yankees embarked on a six-game road trip through Oakland and St. Louis, taking on two last-place ball clubs, including the A's, who are the worst team in Major League Baseball. And there was a real opportunity for the Yankees to move 11, which has been their high-water mark of the season, 11 games above 500, 11, 12, 13, even 14 games above 500, and kind of kind of separate themselves from the rest of that pack in the American League wild card race because the Yankees do currently occupy the third wild card spot. They're tied right now, identical records with the Toronto Blue Jays, but it's very tightly packed behind them. So the Yankees even though they've held that spot for a couple of weeks now and Toronto has now pulled even because the Yankees dropped the last two games to Baltimore. If they look over their right shoulder, they'll see the Red Sox three games back. They'll see the Angels three and a half games back. They'll see the Mariners four games back and the Guardians four and a half games back. Any one of those teams is a winning streak combined with the Yankees losing streak away from surpassing the Yankees and knocking them out of playoff contention. So the Yankees, as they embarked on that Six-game road trip through Oakland and St. Louis really had an opportunity to do something, and they went 3-3 three and three on that disappointing road trip. A disappointing road trip, by the way, that uh, included a perfect game by Domingo Herman. And still, when you look at the overall result, it was disappointing. In fact, since, since that Texas series wrapped up three weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, I guess it was, the Yankees, the Yankees have gone 5-5. Five and five. They split that six-game road trip through Oakland and St. Louis, and then they just split a four-game series against the Orioles, a four-game series that could have been a whole lot better because they won the first two games in very impressive fashion. But let's be honest, that has been the story of the Yankees' season so far. It is literally two steps forward and two steps back. And yes, they continue to, quote-unquote, hold the fort with Aaron Judge out. But we're also getting to the point where we are still not 100% sure 
when or if Aaron Judge is coming back. We all assume he's coming back because nobody is thinking the worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario, obviously, that he's done for the season. And nobody's given any indication, the comments that Aaron Judge has made or anyone else, that he's going to be out for the season. But nobody also has given any, any indication that a, a return to the lineup for Aaron Judge is imminent. You know, since he, and it's been over a month now, it's been over a calendar month since he collided with the right field wall at Dodger Stadium. The Yankees won the next night, their first game without him. But they've played, including that game, 28 games without him. They're 13 and 15. And again, they've been right around that 500 mark the entire time they, without Judge. They've been at 500, and then they'll lose a couple. And then they'll bounce back and win a couple games and get back to 500 without Judge and then lose a couple. The problem is, with the pitching rotation, the starting rotation, that outside of Luis Severino, and we'll talk about him, outside of him, the starting rotation has been solid. You know, Garrett Cole has been terrific all year. Clark Schmidt had a tough first month, and he's been much better lately. He's solidified his spot in the rotation. Domingo Herman is two starts removed from a perfect game. He's had an up-and-down first half of the season. But the overall numbers for Herman for a back-of-the-rotation guy, which is what the Yankees need him to be, they've been solid. Nestor Cortez, they're still without him, holding the fort without him. And then you get a big piece back tonight, and that's why tonight's a very big night for the Yankees. You get a big piece back in Carlos Rodon, and not even a big piece back, but a big piece added. I mean, this was, outside of re-signing Judge for his record contract coming off of his record-breaking season last year, the Rodon signing, six years, $162 million, those two moves essentially were the Yankees' offseason. You know, they brought Judge back because they had to. And they added Rodon to be the number two starter in a rotation that hopefully would have included Nestor Cortez continuing to pitch at an all-star level, which he did last year. That hasn't happened, even before the injury. That hopefully would have included Luis Severino pitching at the level he pitched at last year when he wasn't injured. He was very good when he was healthy last year. But outside of Severino's first two starts, that hadn't happened. And it was also a rotation that was supposed to include Frankie Montaz. And remember him? Yankees gave up a lot for him at the trade deadline last year. He was bad right away. And then he got injured. And then he got even more injured. And we don't know if we'll ever see him again. So the Yankees' rotation plans have not played out. Yet their rotation has been good because of guys like Randy Vasquez Johnny Brito was good earlier in the season. Like I said, Clark Schmidt, after a rough start where it looked like he wasn't long for the Yankees' rotation, is very much a part of the Yankees' starting rotation right now. And they've been anchored by Garrett Cole, who, except for a tough inning here, a tough inning there, a bad moment here, a bad moment there, has been everything the Yankees could have wanted this season as the ace of their staff. And now you get the guy who, on paper, when you drew this whole thing up at the beginning of the season, was supposed to be right there behind Garrett Cole in the starting rotation in Carlos Rodon. And earlier this hour, you heard Michael Kay go through the numbers. I mean, Rodon is a guy who the last two years has been one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. That's why he was one of the biggest prizes on the free agent market in the offseason. And the Yankees know they don't spend money like they used to. And I don't know if that's the worst thing in the world, to be honest with you, because they didn't always spend money the wisest, and there's a lot more money flying around right now. But they spent money here. They identified an area of need at the top of their starting rotation, and this is the guy who they tabbed to fill that spot. Unfortunately for them, 
And for him, the first three months of the season, he hasn't gotten out onto the mound. But he's out there today to lead off this three-game weekend series against the Chicago Cubs. It's Rodon against Jamison Tyone, who was a pretty decent Yankee for his couple of years in pinstripes. They go tonight at Yankee Stadium. Tomorrow afternoon, it's Cole making his final start of the first half against the veteran Drew Smiley. And then on Sunday, it'll be Herman against Kyle Hendricks in another matinee at Yankee Stadium. And then they head into the All-Star break. And it's not a usual All-Star break for the Yankees. You know, we're used to seeing during introductions of the American League rosters before the All-Star game, four, five Yankees at a time being introduced. Not the case this year, just two. And you don't even, um, I don't even think Judge will be out there. I don't even know if he'll be out there in Seattle for the introductions. But you got Judge and you got Garrett Cole, and that is all the Yankees' representation at the All-Star game this season. And I don't even know if Cole will pitch because he's pitching tomorrow. You figure he pitches Saturday, two days rest before the All-Star game on Tuesday. There's a very good chance that you won't see any Yankee in the All-Star game this year. And that's just weird because it's not like they're having a terrible season. You know, they're, they're holding the fort, as we continue to say. They're holding the fort without judge. Their record is 48-40. and 40. Their record is solid. You know, they're on pace to win around 90 games, which in most years gets it done to get into the wild card spot. But when you look at the totality of where they are right now, they something is going to need to change. I mean, the biggest thing that you hope for to change is the return of Aaron Judge. Obviously, that just is the most obvious statement in the world. Uh, if they don't have Aaron Judge, then I, I think everything else is a moot point. Just seeing what the state of this starting lineup is right now. You know, John Carlos Stanton, anemic hitting over his last 25 games. Josh Donaldson, anemic hitting his entire tenure in the Bronx. DJ LeMahieu, not the same guy that he was two years ago. Anthony Rizzo had a hot first month and a half. He collided with Fernando Tatis Jr. around Memorial Day at first base. Hasn't been the same guy since lately. He's been getting on base more. His power is completely gone. He's not the same guy. Volpe, you're starting to see good signs from, and I always thought that you would, and I do applaud the Yankees for the way they have handled him. They never wavered, even when his average dipped to 180, even when he wasn't the slickest or most shorthanded guy at shortstop. They ran him out there every single day. And as I've said repeatedly, the biggest reason they were able to do that is for the most part, the Yankees were winning. They were keeping their heads above water um, despite Anthony Volpe's struggles. And is he out of that completely? Probably not. I think there's probably another slump coming. Uh, he's still a very young player in this game, but he's starting to figure things out. And he's starting to become on a more consistent basis uh, the everyday shortstop that they envision. Remember, he is still just 21 years old. But that's a long way of saying the lineup has not given them nearly enough. The starting rotation has been solid, and the bullpen has been terrific. Best bullpen by the numbers in baseball. However, the last week or so, they have started to show some cracks in the foundation. And let's be honest, you look at the names in that bullpen, you know, this isn't the Yankees' bullpen from seven years ago with... Aroldis Chapman and Andrew Miller and Dellen Batansis and then Zach Britton, just big-name, high-paid, multiple-time all-star guys that just come out of the bullpen firing zeros on the scoreboard. You have a lot of guys with very good arms, very live arms in the bullpen, but not a lot of guys in that bullpen with a track record and not a lot of guys in that bullpen with a history of of performing at this kind of level consistently. 
So logic would tell you that there's a good chance that they're going to regress to the mean at some point. Is that already in progress? I don't know. Maybe for the bullpen of the Yankees, the all-star break is coming at the perfect time. But when you also talk about the bullpen, that is always one of the areas that is easiest to fortify at the trade deadline because there are always relief pitchers available. Just take the eight to ten teams that are out of the pennant race, find out who their closers are, plug them into your bullpen, even if not as your closer, but as a setup man or a late-inning guy, and that fortifies your bullpen. And the Yankees will probably be looking to do something like that, and so will the Mets. The Mets certainly should be hoping and looking to do something like that. So the Yankees beginning their three-game series against the Cubs tonight. You look at... This was interesting. I just saw this on Yes during the pregame show. You know the Cubs have never won a game at Yankee Stadium? The Cubs are 0-12 all-time at Yankee Stadium, and that includes two World Series appearances. But even since interleague play began in 1997, the Cubs have never won at Yankee Stadium, neither the old stadium nor the current Yankee Stadium. I mean, that's amazing. I actually thought that all of the – I mean, growing up as a baseball fan – There were always these ridiculous statistics of futility posted by the Chicago Cubs. First and foremost, the fact that they hadn't won a World Series since 1908, but there was also they hadn't been to the World Series since 1945, and on and on and on. I thought most, if not all, of those crazy Cubs futility statistics went away when they finally did win the World Series in 2016, but apparently not. This one still stands. Now, will it last through the weekend? They're 0-12 all-time at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees absolutely have to win this series, and it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world to sweep a Cubs team that is below 500, is 40-46. and And yeah, I guess technically they're on the periphery of the National League wild card race, but the Cubs are not in the same position, even though record-wise they're right behind the Mets. They're not in the same position as a team like the Mets. They're not a team that is primed to go for it. The Cubs are a team that has had to scratch and claw to get their record to 40 and 46. So that's who the Yankees are facing this weekend. You know, and they didn't take advantage of the opportunity in Oakland against a terrible ball club. They didn't take advantage of the opportunity in St. Louis against the last place ball club. They had a chance to really pick up some ground and even pull even with the Orioles if they could have won the final two games of the series at the stadium. They were unable to do that. So now can they take advantage of another subpar opponent coming into Yankee Stadium in the Chicago Cubs. They have to because this next stretch for the Yankees, and again, they're 48-40, and and they are tied with the Blue Jays for the third and final wild card spot in the American League. They're four games behind the Orioles. They're a game behind the Astros, and they're tied with the Blue Jays for the third and final wild card spot, which actually is not a bad place to be because if you're the third wild card team, that means you play in the first round the winner of the American League Central. And guess who that would be right now? The Yankees' old friends, the Minnesota Twins. But that's a long way down the line. The point I was about to make, starting tonight with this three-game series against Chicago at the stadium, and then out of the All-Star break, the Yankees go to Colorado, another terrible team, for three games. Then they go to Los Angeles to face the Angels, for three games. The Angels are all beat up. Mike Trout is hurt. Anthony Rendon is hurt. 
Shohei Otani was hurt for a moment. He's not pitching right now. He's still batting as a designated hitter, but they're a beat-up team. How healthy are they going to be a week and a half from now when the Yankees are out there? And then they come home for three games against the Kansas City Royals. Those are nine games against, even though six of them are on the road, against eminently beatable teams. And then you add the three this weekend against the Cubs. These next 12 games are a golden opportunity for the Yankees, with or without Aaron Judge. Because the way you hold the fort without Aaron Judge and keep your head above water is you beat the teams that you're supposed to beat. Cubs, Rockies, an injury-depleted Angels squad, and then the Royals. Those are four opponents in a row that the Yankees need to get fat on. They need to win all four of those series. 12 games, 8-4, and four, a minimum. 9-3 and three would be better, according to my math. Because after that, it gets tougher. After that, the second half of the Subway Series, two games in the Bronx against the Mets. Then you go back to Baltimore. Then you welcome in the Rays. And then you welcome in, for a four-game series, the Houston Astros. So that latter part of the schedule that I just mentioned, that's not the opportunity to get fat. You need to build up a little bit of a buffer against these next four opponents before the schedule gets a whole lot tougher beginning with that Mets series. And it starts tonight. It starts with the guy who, look, is making his first start of the season. He's making his first start as a Yankee, his first start in pinstripes, but it starts with Carlos Rodon, the guy who was brought in to be their number two pitcher in this rotation. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. Carlos Rodon making his first start as a Yankee. So they uh, activate Rodon from the 60-day injured list, and they transferred Nestor Cortez to the 60-day injured list. So that's going to push his uh, return back beyond what we thought was possible, most, most likely into early August for Nestor Cortez. Yankees also placed Jake Bauer on the 10-day injured list, and that opened up the roster spot for Franchi Cordero, who had the hot bat the first week and a half of the season, uh, but cooled off significantly and has spent a lot of time in AAA. So that's the Yankees' game one of their three-game weekend series against the Cubs. The Mets, meanwhile, undefeated in July. Uh, They've gotten themselves right back into this race, plain and simple. Uh, And I was, uh, I think, on this station the last time on Sunday afternoon, and that was right at the start of their five-game winning streak. And as I've said repeatedly, this team is going to go as far as, and and it's an oversimplification, sure, but they will go as far as Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer plus their lineup. And yeah, I'm really breaking some ground with that statement there, but it is. It's simple because it's true. And Verlander missed the first month of the season, and then was spotty for the second month, and he started to get going. Scherzer was spotty to begin the season, and then he had that 10-day suspension for the sticky stuff on his hands. Then he was spotty again, but he has started to get it going. And it's no coincidence that, I mean, it's a coincidence that this all happened literally as the calendar turned to July, but it's no coincidence that the Mets lineup has also started to get things going during the month of July. Francisco Lindor, and I know it's only five games and it's a small sample size, but Lindor in July, 368 with a 1426 OPS. Alonzo, two home runs, six RBIs, a 975 OPS in July. Starling Marte, who has been one of the biggest culprits for their slow start, a 375 average with a 
1,007 OPS in July. Mark Canna, small sample size, but he's three for six with a homer and two RBIs in July. Brett Beatty, 308 in July. He's four for 13. Tommy Pham has been solid in July, and he's been, outside of Brandon Nimmo, probably the Mets' most consistent hitter this entire season. And then Alvarez behind the plate. And look, he went through that long 15-game home run drought in the month of June. Final 15 games of June didn't hit a homer. He's got four home runs in his five games in July, and he is on an absolute tear. 353 batting average, four homers, seven RBIs, and a 1480 OPS. So the lineup has gotten going pretty much top to bottom. Jeff McNeil is still struggling. And he's the one guy you need to get going. Brandon Nimmo struggling in these last five games with a 105 batting average, but he has hit two home runs. And Brandon Nimmo has been their best hitter this entire season. So the lineup has been better, and their top two pitchers have been better. And when your top two pitchers are better, it takes pressure off your third starter and your fourth starter and your fifth starter. And we saw what Carlos Carrasco did last night. We saw what Kodai Senga did the night before. The pieces are starting to fall into place. And for the Mets, this is not a fluke. Because this is a team that won 101 games last year and was supposed to contend again. So you're not holding your breath and hoping this doesn't end. You are really hoping that this is the start of something. Looking ahead to the Mets and the Padres, start of a... Big weekend, three-game series out in San Diego. It'll be Verlander and Yu Darvish on the mound tonight. Very good pitching matchup, a 9:40 first pitch. So we'll be together for the very beginning of that one. David Peterson against Blake Snell tomorrow night. Peterson really, and he's been back up for two starts. Tough first stint this season in the major league. Sent back down, came up two starts ago. Uh, and that start really against the Brewers gave them a, a shot in the arm. Uh, that was one of the things that that turned the Mets season somewhat on its axis. Axis, excuse me, because they were they were reeling at that point. And that didn't start the hot streak they're on right now, but it certainly did help. And he's been in the rotation since, so he starts tomorrow night. And then you get Max Scherzer against Joe Musgrove, old friend Joe Musgrove, tomorrow after uh, Sunday afternoon at four ten. So you get Verlander and you get Scherzer in this weekend series in San Diego. Uh, Scherzer's last four starts, he's pitched to a 3.12 ERA, 34 strikeouts and 26 innings pitched. Much more in line with what the Mets need from him. And they're 3-1 and one in those starts. For the season, the ERA is still 4.03. But Scherzer, a big reason why things are starting to turn around for the Mets. And Verlander's been even better. Verlander, you could take back to the start of June, so his last six starts, he's pitched to a 2.65 ERA with 33 strikeouts and 34 innings pitched. Now, the Mets are only 2-4 and four in his six starts. For the season, Verlander, a 3.66 ERA. But if he's going to pitch to a 2.65 with about a strikeout an inning the rest of the way, the Mets will figure out a way to win those games. And the one thing about the Mets, and I know Michael Kay alluded to this early, but it's a good point and one worth mentioning. You know, you look at the teams around them in the standings. I mean, first of all, Miami, the Dodgers, and Philly hold the wild card spots right now. Miami's been a great story. They're 13 games above 500 at 51 and 38. They've been one of the great surprises in Major League Baseball this season, along with Cincinnati and along with Arizona. But do you think that those teams are going to keep up that pace in the second half? Maybe they will, and if they do, 
All credit to them. But I'm going to need to see more from those teams. Are they just a really good story and on a hot streak right now? Or is this a young, athletic team? And I'm talking about all three of them. You heard Buck Showalter say about Arizona after the series sweep for the Mets that it was one of the most athletic teams that the team has faced all season long. So is Miami for real? Is Cincinnati for real? And is Arizona for real? You got the Dodgers in one of the wild card spots. You got the Phillies in the other. But ahead of the Mets are the Giants, and that was big that they took two out of three against them. That's why this week has been so good for the Mets. Not only that they're winning, but they just went five and one against two teams that are ahead of them in the standings the Giants and then the Diamondbacks, who are actually in first place in the National League West, but barely ahead of the LA Dodgers. But Milwaukee is ahead of the Mets. The Mets, I think, are, I shouldn't say I think, the Mets, if they continue at this pace, are far more likely to be an active buyer at the trade deadline. The Padres and the Mets are in a flat-footed tie. You look behind the Mets, you got the Cubs. I think the Mets are much more likely to fortify their team than the Cubs, than the Pirates as well. So where the Mets are in the standings, the fact that they, they did a lot of heavy lifting this week to get back to where they are, six and a half games out of the third wild card spot, which is occupied by the Phillies. They just need to put themselves in position to improve this roster at the end of July. And this five-game winning streak has done that. But it's very important. The Mets, what they did with their 7-19 and month of June and their slow start dipping, what was it, 10 games below 500, what they did was they essentially for the second half of the season and we're in the second half of the season. I know we haven't gotten to the All-Star break yet, but we're past game 81. What the Mets essentially did is they eliminated pretty much any margin for error the remainder of the season. So, yeah, winning two out of three is nice against a weak team. You've got to sweep those series now. You've got to make up for all the losses against weak teams earlier this season. Losses to teams like the Reds, teams like the Cardinals, teams like the Rockies. You've got to make up for those losses. Teams like the Pirates. Because you're running, you'll, you'll have the resources to do it if you can continue to stay in position. And they're in position right now. And then, of course, you need Scherzer to continue pitching like this. You need Verlander to continue pitching like this. It's amazing. I mean, how many calls did we get a week and a half ago that Buck Showalter needs to go? Buck Showalter, the National League Manager of the Year last year, who led this team to 101 wins. All of a sudden, he was the problem. The problem was nobody was hitting or playing well. Your top two pitchers who are being paid collectively $87 million were mediocre. Alonzo was hurt and came back slow. Marte was non-existent. Lindor had flashes of power but was disappointing. McNeil was and still is struggling. You essentially had a one-man lineup consisting of Brandon Nimmo with some help from Tommy Pham and some occasional help from Francisco Lindor. How is any team supposed to win like that? How is any manager supposed to win like that? So at least over the last five days, we have heard the calls for Buck Showalter's job die down a little bit. All right, let's hear from you. Pat O'Keefe in for Dan, 1-800-919-3776. Let's start things off this hour with Spike and St. Pete. What's going on, Spike? Spike, you there? Some of the calls, like Buddha and I, we become friends off the air, and we enjoy you whenever you get a chance to uh, speak. And I got this new TV package, one of my son's, uh, came over from Europe and brought it for me, and I get everything now, everything. 
so I can watch you uh, whenever I choose to, which is a perk. So really enjoy your uh, presentation. I appreciate now, on the that. Yankees, well, you're welcome. Um, look, I, I look at the statistics. Baseball's my second sport. Obviously, hoops is first. I think there's 10 guys hitting over 300 in both leagues. I could be off by one or two. It's paltry. Batting averages are paltry. Uh, I know your age roughly. I'm probably twice your age, of course, to it. You have to reevaluate how you look at things. It's um, Batting averages don't count. I don't know. To me, it still counts. But the game's changing. I think the Yankees have to get Judge back. It, it's really, really tough to watch them. They don't fundamentally don't play well. And um, it looks like a couple of these guys are washed. It really does. But I hope not. Uh, Donaldson is a whole case by itself. That sits aside. LeMay is a fan favorite. It was. And he just looks slow and old. But who knows? And the Mets, you hit it right on the head. Nimmo's been the most consistent since the last week or two. And uh, they're shackled with those two contracts. They paid one of my boys is a Mets fan, and they paid 30-year-old prices for 40-year-old pitches, pretty much. That's where it blows out. And I want to make one comment on the hoops because it's you. I, I, you have to explain to me when you get to it later in the next block or two. You have to explain to me why the NBA put in this ridiculous tournament. And I'm just saying it now for later, if you don't mind. I just, for the life of me, can't understand what they're thinking. Maybe you could straighten me out. But anyway, I'm going to enjoy and listen to you because uh, down here in South Florida for the next two months, it's the only temperature I remember it equivalent to or the humidity is uh, Cambodia, and I don't want to go back there. No, we don't want you to go back there either, Spike. Thanks for checking in. Appreciate the call. I'll get to the midseason tournament. The NBA uh, announced some details about it earlier this week. Uh, They're going to actually have a special half-hour show on ESPN tomorrow night at 7.30 to go through the full details of this midseason tournament. There's some of what we do know about it. There's some parts that I think are interesting uh, or have the potential to be interesting. We're also going to have Tommy Beer, uh, who does a great job covering the NBA, on with us at 7.30. So we'll get his thoughts on that as well. Um, The Yankees being washed. Donaldson is washed. The The problem with Donaldson is there is, at least on paper, an obvious person just to, to put in to that spot at third base, and that would be DJ LeMahieu, right? If you're the Yankees, it would be very clean. You have Rizzo at first, and you have Glaber Torres at second, and you have Anthony Volpe at short. It would be very clean for the Yankees to just plug in DJ LeMahieu at third base, and away we go. You know, Donaldson is a 150 hitter. I think he's got 13 hits this year, and nine of them are home runs. He's radioactive right now. Um, I don't like the, um, and this happened with Joey Gallo, and this happened with Aaron Hicks, and I think the fans are starting to feel emboldened. And I'm not saying it was the wrong move in any of these cases to move on from Gallo or to move on from Aaron Hicks, and, and it's probably the right move to move on from Josh Donaldson. In fact, it is the right move to move on from Josh Donaldson. I just hope the Yankees are doing it for the right reasons. I think that the fans are, because they got on Gallo, and then the Yankees traded him, and then they got on Hicks, and then the Yankees cut him loose. 
and now they have their sights set on Josh Donaldson. And how much longer does he have? Well, he doesn't have much longer, I would hope, if he's going to continue to hit at this anemic level. Rodon, by the way, went one, two, three in the top of the first inning in his first start as a Yankee. I just I don't want the fans to feel emboldened that anytime they don't like somebody, that they're they feel that if they voice their displeasure enough at the ballpark that Yankees management is going to act on that because that is not a way to run a franchise. It's not. And I'm not saying that that's what the Yankees are doing right now, but this type of thing can have a snowball effect, right? It started with Gallo and they got him out of town. It continued with Hicks and it gained steam until it became too much to bear. And the Yankees cut a guy loose who they still owed $35 million to. And now they're doing it with Josh Donaldson. And of the three, Hicks is probably the one who had the strongest case to stay. And his play right now in Baltimore is backing that up. And I know Hicks was extremely frustrating. And he wasn't always available because of injuries mostly. His production took a serious dip. But if you go back to 2021, the first full year after COVID, Hicks had finally reestablished himself as the Yankees' starting center fielder. And then in the middle of August, when the Yankees were playing well, Hicks injured his elbow, and he was done for the rest of the season. And that sent the Yankees' season on a downward spiral. And what that does is it tells you two things. It tells you, number one, that the Yankees needed Aaron Hicks to play well because when he played well, the team played well. And it also tells you, number two, that he wasn't reliable. He couldn't stay healthy. And at a certain point, you just get too frustrated keeping a guy like that on the team whose production is marginal at best. And then last year, he did all those stupid things. I mean, it it crested that Tampa Bay game where he dropped the ball in left field. He thought it went foul. He gave up on the play. He literally banged his head against the wall in frustration while the Rays circled the bases. And from that point on, the fans were never going to come back around on Aaron Hicks unless he got hot again, and he never did. But Donaldson, yeah, is washed. But the problem is, what are you going to do? Replace him with DJ LeMahieu? He might be washed. I mean, LeMahieu wasn't good last year, and he's even worse this year. He was injured last year, and you hoped that the foot injury was the reason why his production dipped. He had an offseason to take care of it and rest it, and he's come back this year, and he's been even worse. So there's no easy answer for the Yankees at third base. I guess the easy answer is just put LeMahieu out there and cut ties with Josh Donaldson. But right now, they seem completely unwilling to do that. Will it change in a couple of weeks? Who knows? But you can't focus all this on Josh Donaldson because Stanton is not hitting, and they're not cutting him loose. Aaron Judge isn't there. They're doing the best they can with what they have in the outfield. Rizzo is not hitting. So there's a lot of holes in that lineup. You know, we talk about the Mets lineup where for most of the season it was Nimmo and Nimmo alone who was hitting. Who's hitting on the Yankees? Like, who's been who's been the Yankees' best hitter this season? It's been Glaber Torres. And they just flashed his numbers on the screen. He's batting 245. He's been the Yankees' best hitter this season. Um, Spike said that he thinks there's 10 players in Major League Baseball hitting 300. There are 11. Two of them, Letty Tavares of Texas 
and Bryson Stott of Philadelphia are hitting exactly 300. In all of Major League Baseball, there are 11 players that are batting 300 or higher, led by Luisa Rise, who's batting 388. I guess I know that, and that's why I, I, my eyes now go to OPS first when I'm trying to judge um, a batter. But batting average is still important because if somebody's hitting 190, then he's not good. I, I don't care. I could look at any other column. If he's hitting 190, then he's not productive. If he's hitting 220, then there's a very good chance that he's not productive, unless he's on a massive power surge like a Pete Alonzo. So from that respect, batting average still holds some importance in my mind anyway. All right, let's go back to the phones. Tommy in Connecticut's been waiting. Tommy, what's going on? Hey, Patrick, how are we doing this evening? I'm good, Tommy. How are you? Uh, but much better than uh, if I was sitting at home watching the Yankee game last night. I was, uh, I've never been happier to be at a fire department grade and not have to suffer through that one. You know, just so literally we – I don't know. I don't know where you live. If they have volunteer fire department parades, but so we started marching at like ten after seven, quarter after seven. Yeah, it was already three nothing. By the time I had my first hot dog, it was thirteen nothing. I was like, "Well, <laughs> fantastic!" <laughs> hey, at least it, it freed up your night. You didn't have to rush home to watch the game. Oh, yeah. There was nothing to. I, I didn't tune in. I didn't have to worry about nothing. But as far as the Yankees go, uh, I think we. I know people want to kill Boone, but you know I think he just tried to give Severino as much run as he can. But I think we've got to, we got to admit he's something's wrong. He's done. His his slider's flat. His fastball's got no life. Um, and and the problem is the lineup too. I mean, not that they were going to make up for a fourteen run game, but you know when IKF is the pitcher that has the lowest ERA that pitched last night, it's it's not. It's not what you want. That's true. But he's been pretty good, that IKF. They might want to take yeah, a long, hard look he's, at him. He's, he's, a, he's a reliable fella, you know? And <laughs> uh, and if I can just I, – I know the K-Star was by himself earlier, so he didn't have Donnie to, like, go nuts on somebody. But <laughs> I don't know if you were paying attention. There was a caller who said he was studying for sports media and then made a reference to, to Brian Hoke. And I was like – like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> Hoke's had a good career. Hoke's been covering the Yankees for 15 years. Yeah, but not, but not when you pronounce it Hotch. <laughs> well, his name is Hoke. It's Brian Hoke. Yeah, but that, that was not the way this this. Oh, I got it. you. I got you. I'm sorry. You said Hoke. Oh, that's why you threw me off. Oh, no. Yeah, no. That's, that's what he should have. Yeah, so Brian Hotch. I'm like, I was like, oh, boy. Yeah, well, yeah, go back to studying, buddy. Tommy, thanks yeah, for the yeah. call, man. <laughs> Uh, is Severino done? I don't. I don't know, but it do, it doesn't look good. I mean, here's the deal with the Yankees rotation. You know, you got Cole. You hopefully have Rodon back now. Um, Herman and Clark Schmidt. Honestly, the way that they've been pitching are suitable for the fourth and fifth spots in a rotation. So who's going to fill that third spot when Nestor Cortez comes back? You hope he's the Cortez of last year, and that's him. And where does that leave Luis Severino? Well, if Luis Severino continues to pitch like this, Severino's first two starts coming off the injured list to begin the season, he had a 1.59 ERA. Since then, in his last seven starts, his ERA has jumped from 1.59 to 7.38.
and he does look lost. And it started that night in Los Angeles, that same series where Aaron Judge was the night before Aaron Judge injured his toe. Severino in the first inning, it was just hard hit after hard hit after hard hit, just line drive single one after another. And I think the Dodgers put like seven or eight on the board in the first inning. And ever since then, I think he's had one good outing in his last seven ever since then. But, yeah, he looks completely lost. And then Albert Abreu came in and threw uh, gasoline on what was already a pretty significant flame last night. And just like that, the Yankees, after taking the first two games of the series, lose the next two and split the series against the Orioles. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. All right, Pat O'Keefe back with you in for Dan tonight. Uh, let's switch our conversation to the NBA. Frequent guest of the show, uh, the author of What's on Tap with Tommy Beer newsletter, and uh, just a man about the NBA, Tommy Beer joins us. Tommy, what's going on, buddy? How you doing? Doing well, Pat. How about yourself? Always great to have you on. I'm doing well, Tommy. Thanks. Um, all right, let's get into it. Let's start with the Knicks. Um, you know, overall, and obviously the two uh, biggest moves, as you know, Obi Toppin out and Dante DiVincenzo in as a free agent signee. What are your thoughts on the Knicks offseason so far? Yeah, uh, listen, let's start with Obi. Um, it's disappointing. Obviously, three years ago when the Knicks made uh, Obi Toppin the eighth overall pick in the 2020 draft, they didn't expect that they'd be issuing a, a, a release, a press release today saying that they traded him for two second-round picks, heavily protected second-round picks at that. Um, so obviously disappointing. Um, they deserve to be knocked for that. Um, that's a poor allocation of assets and, you know, not really, you know, using him the right way. Uh, listen, it, it, obviously the, the emergence of Julius Randle as an all-star and all-NBA player was not foreseen by the front office at that time. Um, but it, uh, it's still hard to swallow uh, giving up a, a player with that promise. And it's not like he's a complete bust, obviously. He's played well in spot starts. Um, when given minutes, he's shown flashes, not consistently, not on the defensive end, et cetera. Um, but giving up basically for peanuts is a tough pill to swallow. That being said, I think the front office would counter any criticism of that move by saying it's not strictly a trade for two second-round draft picks. It was made in conjunction um, we really wanted Dante DiVincenzo in order to bring Dante DiVincenzo aboard. We had to create a spot in the rotation. In order to do that, we had to push somebody out. That person happened to be Julius Randle, and we feel that DiVincenzo um, will contribute more to this team than Obi Toppin did. Not necessarily in the same position, obviously. DiVincenzo is going to play in the wing, better defender, better ball mover, better shooter. Um, so th those are the reasons to be optimistic. Um, you know, it, it depends how you slice it. Um, but I do like the move of DiVincenzo. Um, and now it's just a question of uh, are they done? We'll see if they have any other tricks up their sleeve for the next couple months. You know, you mentioned Toppin's role, and I completely agree. Um, you know, they drafted him at a time when Randall was coming off of his first season in New York and was a disappointment. He hadn't become an all-star. He hadn't become an all-NBA player. So from that respect, it was bad timing. Um, but Toppin you know, served, all right, he only played 13 to 14 minutes a game, but those were an important 13 to 14 minutes. So yeah. if DiVincenzo's in at 6'4", more of a perimeter player, and Toppin's out, Randall's not playing 48 minutes a game. You know, and Tom Thibodeau likes to play a pretty, you know, he's got two centers, he's got a backup power forward, he's got backup wings. So if this is the team, Tommy, who plays that position when Randall's on the bench right now? 
Yeah, so it looks like they're content. Again, this is, you know, maybe the puzzle's not complete. Maybe they have some other, you know, there's been some rumors that they've poked around at a couple of the players, and they're obviously going to keep an eye on the stars should one of those guys demand out. Um, but it sounds like they're content going into next season with uh, Josh Hart as their backup power forward. Now, obviously not an ideal spot for Hart. Um, 6'4", 6'5", plenty strong, um, but he's going to be undersized most nights. Very good rebounder for his position. Um, the, the one thing to mention, and I don't love it, but, you know, it is what it is. We'll see. You know, they'll experiment with it. Um, R.J. Barrett will get some minutes, you know, uh, at the four. If they want to go big, they can bring in Jericho Sims and, and kind of play him alongside uh, either Mitchell Robinson or, or Isaiah Harden. So they're really getting beat on the boards or um, there's a big bruising power forward that they need to slow down defensively. Um, but, it is, but it is important to note that one of the reasons um, – that, uh, you know, Obi didn't fit in well with New York was he wasn't put in a position to kind of maximize his skill set uh, because they basically stuck him in the corner and had him shoot threes. Um, so that's something that Dante DiVincenzo can do. That's something that Josh Hart can do. That's something that R.J. Barrett can do. Um, so though, though I think that's the kind of the rationale that they used. Um, Tom Thibodeau wanted his power forward, the backup four, and Julius Randle, for that matter, to shoot plenty of three-pointers. So that's, I think that's the kind of rationale from the, the front office and the coaching staff. One more on Obi. So he's in Indiana now, and they're an interesting team. They've made uh, a lot of moves this offseason, and I've seen some projections, including one from you, I think, on Twitter yesterday when you were listing the Pacers' depth chart. You had Obi as their starting power forward. Um, what do you think he'll be? Because I'm of the mind – but I think if this guy's given 30 minutes a game, he could average 14 points and seven rebounds. What do you think Toppin can be? I agree, Pat. Listen, I don't know what he, you know, defensively is going to be an issue. Um, so I don't know what he's going to be in terms of PER and win shares and plus minus, and if he's going to impact winning to a, you know, exaggerated extent with Indiana. But I think, you know, if I, I'll take a look at the odds when Vegas releases him. He's got a shot to win most of the NBA's most improved player award. I think he's got a shot to average 16 points and seven rebounds. It's just a really ideal, perfect fit for Toppin. They don't have a, a, a pure power forward on the roster. You know, he'll battle. You know, they just drafted uh, Walker, um, you know, Jalen Smith. They, they're bringing back. So there's, there's competition for minutes there. It's not like he's going to play 37 minutes a night. But I think he has the inside track on the starting position. Again, the, the, the Pacers have his bird right, so they're going to want to see what, what he can do. They're going to give him plenty of opportunity to win that starting job. And should he win that starting job and play 28 to 30 minutes a night, somewhere in that range, maybe 25 to, to 29, he's playing with an up-tempo offense with a very offensively creative coach in Rick Carlisle, a terrific young point guard uh, in Tyrese Halliburton, who's already talked about you know, them being kind of a, a Patrick Mahomes-Tyree Hill combination where he's going to utilize OB taking the top off the defense playing with a stretch five in Miles Turner that's going to park out in the corners and really give Obi room to operate. Remember, at Dayton, he was the player of the year, averaged 20 points, shot 60% from the floor, um, led, the lead, led, led the country, led the, the nation in points in the paint and dunks. Um, so he hasn't had an opportunity to kind of showcase that skill set. I think he will in Indiana. I think he's in for a big year. I think it rubs a little more salt in the wounds that Toppin will now be playing yeah. with the guy who the Knicks should have drafted instead of Obi Toppin. Tyrese Halliburton, who just yeah, he just signed that two hundred and sixty million dollar extension as well. But you know, Obi's a popular Nick, and I, you know, it, it didn't yeah. work out, and and I think it was the timing more than anything. But let's get back to the Knicks. Um, and if this is the Knicks team, um, where does that put them right now in the Eastern Conference? 
Yeah, I think you're looking at, you know, five, six, seven, maybe as high as four. You know, I, I think Tibbs and those guys will have self-belief that they can, you know, become, you know, that they can earn first uh, home court advantage in the first round, you know, be one of the four, you know, top four seeds in the East. But, you know, realistically, there's, a, 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 you know, there's some improvement from some of the teams below them. Um, you know, we'll see. We mentioned the Pacers. Um, Magic came on strong. Uh, the interesting thing about the NBA this season is, you know, at this time last year, there were five or six teams that were going into the 22-23 season thinking, how can we lose as many games as possible so we get a shot at Wembayana, um, who's going to tip off plays for his biggest pro debut on, on ESPN in a couple hours a year. Um, you know, this, there's not as good a, you know, there's not a top-of-the-line prospect available in 2024, so you see teams like the Rockets and the, the Magic and, the Sp- you know, the Spurs, obviously, with Wembayana. Um, you know, even the Wizards, we thought they'd kind of go in full you know, tank mode. They signed Kyle Kuzma to a $100 million contract. So there's going to be a lot of competition in the middle, um, and it's going to be difficult. You know, and obviously the questions are going to come up. Now there's the Knicks are now more committed, kind of pot committed to Randall than they ever have been before, where they don't have that insurance policy uh, of Obi Toppin behind them. That's my biggest issue is kind of circling back and, um, you know, wrapping up the whole Obi conversation. My biggest issue with the trade was if you're going to trade him for peanuts now, why not wait until the deadline and mm-hmm. trade him for peanuts? Because his value can't be any lower, and this way you still have that insurance policy. You know, Obi, uh, Julius Randle just had a walking boot removed after sur- surgery. He's been very durable. He never misses games. Hopefully that stays the case. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there, that, that could be an issue. The Knicks got very fortunate relative-wise. Um, during the regular season in terms of injury, uh, can they maintain that? Should they? Um, they have a great point guard. That, you know, so I think anywhere between five and eight is, is probably where they're full. So we know, obviously, Tibbs, and you know, he's, he likes that nine-man rotation, and it worked last year. So the way you see it now, same starting five, and then the four guys off the bench would be quickly and now DiVincenzo with Hartenstein as the backup center and Josh Hart. Yeah, and obviously the, the, the questions remaining, the, the biggest question remaining this offseason for the Knicks is what are they going to do with Emmanuel quickly in terms of his contract extension? His contract eligible. Um, again, it's not a, you know, not forced. The Knicks aren't backed into a corner here. They can choose to go into next season, um, as could IQ. And no matter what the Knicks offer, say, I want to be a restricted free agent because I think I can earn a huge payday with another strong season. Um, you know, so that'll be the question. Does he settle for four years and 75-ish, $80 million that the Knicks may offer? Um, if he if he demands $100 million on a four-year contract, the Knicks say, okay, we'll do that. You know, we, we think that's relative to, to some other contracts that have been signed. Um, we're comfortable going there. Um, that'll be the kind of the, the main interesting question, assuming there's no trades and, and no big deals along those lines from a Knicks perspective. That's probably the biggest question mark remaining uh, this offseason. Tommy Beer is the author of What's on Tap with Tommy Beer, a great newsletter, also a great follow on Twitter at Tommy Beer. Um, all right, let's let's go around the NBA and, and the big the big story right now outside of uh, you know Wem Benyama's <laughs> interaction yesterday with Britney Spears is <laughs> is Damian Lillard. Um, he has requested a trade about a week ago. Uh, his agent seems to be going on the offensive, uh, reportedly uh, reaching out to teams and telling them that if you're not Miami and you want to trade for my client, you're going to get an unhappy player. And, and then. Amidst all of this, Miami doesn't have, it seems, the best deal to offer Portland for Damian Lillard. So how do you see this playing out? It's, I think it's going to get ugly. I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon. One, because Portland has no motivation to take less than market value for a guy that uh, you know averaged a career-high 32 points per game last year, one of the top three or four point guards in the entire world. 
Um, you know, shot a career-high uh, effective field goal percentage, really still playing at a high level. Um, the contract is obviously concerned from, from the Portland perspective. They did just draft Scoot Henderson. Um, but, yeah, in terms of the package they get back from Miami, um, I understand Dane wants to play for Miami, but he also signed a contract um, that's going to pay him you know, $150 million over the next four seasons, and he knows full well that contract does not include a no-trade clause. Um, which means, and I understand, listen, you know, he, we all get to have a preference of what we want to do in this world, um, where we want to work, whom we want to work with. But the Blazers also have a, 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 not only uh, the right to do so, but they, they are responsible to their fan base to get back the best possible package for that player. Um, so I, I think it's, it's going to stretch out. I don't know if another team is going to get involved. Um, I think it'll probably come down to the Heat being able to find a taker for Tyler Hero. Um, because obviously the, the Blazers don't want him. Not only is his contract not overly attractive, making him an average annual value of around $27, $28 million over the next three seasons. Um, they're also they're stacked in their backcourt. We mentioned Scoot Henderson, Shaden Sharp, a, a, a young rising rookie uh, that they brought in last year. Anthony Simons can shoot the lights out. Um, so they just don't have a need for hero. Um, can, they, can Miami flip him for a draft pick or two? Does the, does the Brooklyn Nets? Are they interested in, in you know, sending out a couple of draft picks for Tyler Hero? If that's the case, Miami could uh, you know, kind of piece together uh, a package that includes expiring contracts, whether that's Kyle Lowry or Duncan Robinson, and up to four or five first-round draft picks. Then that might be enough to kind of push the Blazers and say, okay, um, you know, this, this is what we want. But that being said, Dame has kind of built a career on being a stand-up guy, the consummate professional. I don't see him, no matter what the situation is, whether it's going to uh, coming back to Portland or being traded to Utah, um, of him kind of sitting out. One, I don't see him forfeiting uh, you know, $40 million in, in salary. And two, he's a guy that loves to play basketball. So um, I understand his agent and his team kind of pushing that narrative, um, but I, uh, I support the Blazers not caving um, because, I, again, there's no reason for them to do so, especially at this time. And the Damian Lillard trade request has kind of pushed to the back burner talk of James Harden doing the same thing a couple of days prior. Now, it's a different situation. Obviously, he's he's an older player. He's only under contract for one year at, at a much smaller number. Um, where do you see James Harden? And, and the other part of this is Daryl Morey, right? Didn't Morey just go through this yeah. a couple of years ago with Ben Simmons and he dug his heels in? So is there a chance that we see, despite the trade request, Harden in a Sixers jersey next year? Yeah, and Maury dug his heels in, and it paid off. He ended up unloading Ben Simmons and got back James Harden, who gave him, a, most people thought, a, a real shot to go to the, you know, to the, the NBA Finals or at least the, the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, so, again, you know, similar situation in, in the respect that the, the team in control of the player um, doesn't have a real motivation to, you know, to, to fulfill his wishes. Yes, James Harden would like to find his way to Los Angeles. Um, I think the, the, I think that the Sixer deal, I, I could certainly see um, Harden playing out one more season in Philadelphia. But unlike Dame, we know that when Harden isn't happy, he has no problem, you know, <laughs> putting on a couple pounds and going to the club and uh, making, you know, and, and creating headaches. Um, but, and I, but I do think the Clippers, there is a package there um, in terms of expiring contracts that not only are expiring, but would help potentially help the, uh, the, the Sixers this year, whether it's a Nick Batum, uh, a Mook Morris, uh, a Robert Cummington. You know, these are guys that could, you know, give you 15, 20 minutes off the bench. Um, and then obviously, the, you know, uh, three or four 
two or, you know, depending on the protection first round draft pick. So I think there might be something there. Um, you know, I, I'd say there's probably like a 60% chance he ends up in Los Angeles, maybe like a 40% chance he's back with the Clippers. So okay. I think that's probably coin flip some, somewhere along those lines. That's interesting. Last thing, Tommy, uh, gut reaction or gut feeling. Do you think that this is the team that the Knicks start the season with, what they are right now? I do. I do. I, listen, I, I think that, you know, it, we, we would all love to, you know, they, they, you know if Joel Embiid comes out tomorrow on Twitter and says, listen, I'm, I'm tired of this, I, I need to get relocated. We know the close relationship um, that they have, uh, you know, that he has with Leon Rose. Um, but the reason I think that, that it's likely, I think they're, they're willing to go into next season with this roster is because they're keeping their powder dry. They don't want to just trade for an upgrade, you know, a marginal upgrade. You know, from uh, you know an, an, an improvement, you know, somewhere along the lines, they're keeping their powder dry for that Joel Embiid. They're going to keep an eye on the Luka Doncic, Doncic situation, Dallas. Now that Kyrie's back there, uh, who knows what headaches he can cause? Um, is Giannis completely satisfied that he's going to spend the rest of his career in Milwaukee? These are the type of names that I think the the, the Knicks ultimately, obviously, would love to get their hands on. And there's no, and, and I think that they can continue going in the direction they have been, which is. You know, competitive in the short term, but also keeping their uh, again keeping their options open. Should one of these big names shake loose, um, they probably have the best allocations of young players on affordable contracts and draft picks of any team in the NBA, uh, and that's when you can really make their mark. Tommy, always good to catch up. Thanks so much for all the insight, and we'll talk to you down the line. My pleasure. Have a great weekend, Pat. You too. Tommy Beer, again, the author of What's on Tap with the Tommy Beer. It's a newsletter, uh, also a podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at Tommy Beer. Uh, has a lot of good stuff. He was on a, on a Twitter uh, binge earlier today. A lot of good NBA content there. This is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs>